Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly Communication is an open and ongoing conversation about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this. Communicating is not a transferring, as if knowledge might be vacuum-sealed and delivered totally conserved brain-to-brain. No, the premise of the podcast is that research communication is a place and time where people meet, to represent, and to recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too. And meaning is not something we send to receive, it's something we make. I'm your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors of research, to editors at journals or chairs on conferences, and to professionals in the training of research communication, all talking about how it is that the written word makes known the real world. My guest today is Rebecca Roach, host of the podcast you probably know, and if you don't, you should, Academic Imperfectionist. Rebecca has a PhD in philosophy from Cambridge and since 2006 has worked as an academic philosopher, first in the University of Oxford and now at the University of London. As well as teaching students and publishing her research in academic journals and books, she has written and spoken about philosophy in various media venues, including the BBC, The Guardian, and Harper's. She's a podcaster and an academic coach, and today she is on scholarly communication. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm an avid listener to your podcast, and I have noticed a sort of theme that runs through. There's very many themes that run through, but when you talk particularly from your coaching sessions, you you come with something along the lines often of, right, I have these people coming to me trying to become more productive towards their goals, but upon inspection or even introspection, they can't quite say what those goals are, or they say it and don't quite realize why it is that they're pursuing it. I mean, this is quite in line with your, I would say, unorthodox approach to um, dealing with um academics and coaching and the, uh, the psychology involved of um, dealing with uh, productivity and, and, and a competitive workplace. It, it, it's quite in line with that because you, you tend to get at the heart, at the essences of things. And, and, and this experience that you seem to repeat amongst your coaching clients seems to speak to one of the core problems that academics often face, this let's say, maybe disorientation, if that's a word that you could make use of? I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, it's surprising, really. These uh, So any problem that I mention on my podcast tends to be something that's come up again and again with various people, and often with me too. Um, I think a lot of us as academics, we, and this is certainly true in my case as well, not, not just people I coach, but um, we kind of start on the process to becoming an academic 
almost kind of we, we sort of sleepwalk into it a lot of the time I think we we do our undergraduate degree and then we decide we want to stay stick around a bit longer so do maybe a master's a PhD and then you know sort of may as well become a postdoc and so so we sort of become academics just to, by allowing ourselves to get carried along by the you know that the the natural forces that <laughs> It sort of move past us um, if we have skill in, in that area. And I think the result of that is that um, often we don't stop and ask ourselves, you know, what do I want out of life? What do I want my career to look like? What do I want my my life in general to look like? Um, and it, it, it's, I say it's, it's puzzling because you know, these are sort of really intelligent, switched on people in all sorts of ways. And yet often I get people coming to me and saying, you know, I'm I'm kind of at the top of my career. And it's only just occurred to me that I'm not very satisfied with this path I've taken. Um, I think, I mean, p- perhaps this, uh, this crops up in other areas as well. I don't think it's unique to academia. But I think probably one important contributor sorry excuse me one important contributor to it is that um we are con- we are so self-critical and i think a lot of us get into the habit of focusing so much on what we ought to be doing just to be adequate that we don't stop to think you know do i actually want this and i think that's um you know that's a problem for a lot of us academics you you mentioned there also in in general which i find interesting because if if you think about sort of like life coaching and 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 the sort of academic coaching that that you do and and it is this is perhaps perhaps worth exploring if it's something that you're you're familiar with through being in um, the vicinity of London being involved now in this profession that you could perhaps expand upon but this idea that you coach somebody in their life or in their profession mm-hmm. is is I would say rather new uh, and by new, I mean maybe you know ten to twenty years new, and uh, and it makes me wonder at times. It makes me wonder if if it's a symptom of something, or if it's just something that hadn't been noticed before, or um, why is it now that uh, that this this professional option is there now for people? Yeah, I think it's in in many ways, coaching is providing a service that has cropped up in other guises through the years. Um, I, I actually first got interested in it when I was attending some professional training about becoming a mentor because I'd been assigned as at work, I'd been assigned as a mentor to a junior member of staff and they said, oh, you have to go on this course about mentorship. Um, and as part of that training, they they sort of explain like this is this is what a mentor is, and here are some similar things which are slightly different, and here's how they're slightly different. Uh, and one of the one of the things was coaching, um, and I just started thinking. So, so I suppose one thing that illustrates is it's quite closely aligned with things like mentorship, um, even therapy, um, consultancy, career guidance, all all this sort of stuff. Um, and, and it was at that point where I thought, oh, well, hang on, actually, um, as a philosopher, I can, I think there's a a useful angle for philosophy to apply here. So I think, you know, there's this sort of what coaching is, which can be sort of a lot of different things, depending on, 
who does it. You know, sometimes it's it's a lot about hand holding, you know, walking with somebody as they sort of work their way through whatever issues they're facing. Um, and then there's sort of various ways that people put their own spin on it as well. Um, so I think what I the approach I take really is um, approaching people's problems with as a philosopher. So philosophers are, I mean, sort of a large part of what we do is analysing fundamental assumptions, questioning things, sort of poking into somebody's reasoning. Um, and that's often just applied to quite abstract topics. Um, but yeah, it occurred to me that actually this would be quite a useful set of tools to apply to people's lives. So to ask people about what they want out of their life, where do they want to be? Are there assumptions about how they're, you know, how they're faring, how productive they are, or how good a person they are, how successful they are? Are these all based on sound reasoning or are they, as is often the case, I think, sort of basically baseless, arising from anxieties and so on? So, yeah, I think it's sort of a meandering answer there. But I think, you know, sort of coaching is sort of it, it's not it's not a new thing. Um, it's uh, it, it has its roots in all sorts of things that we wouldn't have necessarily have called coaching uh, a decade or so ago. And then there's the sort of different specialisms as well. So I'm sort of just basically, I mean, I'm still a philosopher, as I always have been like, my whole adult life. I think the coaching part of it is I'm sort of a philosopher about people's problems and anxieties and so on. Or maybe philosophy and application, if that would be something that you would be comfortable with, because that, that's that's the impression that I get from from listening. I mean, I I began this with this idea of sort of disorientation, and and it's wonderful. In episode after episode, you surprise us with just you know a, a logical move at a very, as you say, sort of fundamental level that that opens up. Ah, the anxiety actually is is misplaced, or the expectations are entirely contradictory or you know i mean the, the classic reasoning of, of a philosopher to to give give orientation if you like yeah well thank you yes it's certainly um uh applied philosophy i guess you know sort of not not all applied philosophy is coaching um but that that's sort of certainly what i'm trying to do i think um you know i've noticed oh you know i've been a philosopher say in various guises and levels of uh, aptitude since I was 18 when I went to university you know I did an undergraduate degree in philosophy and then you know all my studies all my um, sort of uh, higher education was in philosophy and then you know apart from a, a little deviation for a few years I've I've worked as a philosopher my whole life um, and through that time I sort of noticed I, I became increasingly impatient with certain uh well, certain sort of branches of philosophy, um, just the sense that there's some there's some arguments in philosophy, some debates that you sort of think, well, they're kind of interesting, but you know, 500 years from now, if humans are still around, we probably won't have, you know, we probably won't be any near agreement on these issues. Um, I'm talking about, you know, sort of quite uh, esoteric stuff, like, you know, sort of what, what is free will, um, uh, what sort of thing is the mind? Uh, what sort of thing are you know? What what 
what makes uh, what makes us the same person from one moment to the next, if indeed we are the same person from one moment to the next? You know, these are all sorts of questions that um, interested me early on. And as as time went by, I, I just sort of, I don't know, I sort of got, I, I realised, I suppose, that yeah, we're, we're maybe not, I don't feel like we're moving closer to a resolution of this debate. And also, um, I'm not sure I care that much in a lot of cases about what the particular, you know, what the answer is, what the truth of the matter is, if there even is a, a truth. Um, you know, for me, the interest was in um, engaging in the debate. And so over time, I, I got more and more interested in applying philosophy to issues that um lots of people care about uh, inside and outside of academia. So, you know, ethics, um, I'm interested in um, certain aspects of the philosophy, like sort of social and cultural aspects of language, that sort of thing. And so I see the move to coaching as kind of an extension of that. It's still applied philosophy, but it's um, a philosophy applied to problems that people, that individuals are facing. Yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, applied can obviously come across as as if it was less deep or something like that. I mean, there's there's a branch in linguistics that's called appliable linguistics. Applied linguistics, people tend to think, um, you know, teaching language, right? And unfortunately, it gets a bad reputation. But you know, this appliable idea is that the theory itself, in built into the theory itself, is that it be brought out into the world. So you know, that's it's theory is part of its practice, if you like. Um, I, I bring this up par- partially because it's it, it, some of what you say re- reminds me of my own trajectory. My listeners will know that I help scientists write and publish. And it was very much a sort of sense of malaise in, in literary, literary criticism and literature studies generally through my own trajectory where I thought, yeah. So, so what? <laughs> and, and, and at some point I realized, Hey, but it's actually useful to be a close reader of texts because that can help, you know, people publish who, who are having trouble doing that because they don't, you know, that they're a biologist. They didn't learn how to, you know, read or write texts at, at that level, which they actually turn out to almost need to, to, to publish their work. And, and that sounds a lot like the way that you've also sort of re-geared some of your philosophical interests, bringing it into line with, um, you know, where its use value may also be socially. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a matter, I suppose, of pausing and, and asking what, what interests me here. Um, and I think I've, I, I've moved from thinking that the important thing is to get to the truth. And I think, you know, a lot of the time, <laughs> there maybe isn't a truth uh, in, in the case of certain debates. And instead asking, what is this stuff useful? So, you know, if there's a particular conception of, I mean, I suppose to give, to give one example of something I used in a podcast episode, um, uh, it's a, an argument from Socrates that there's no such thing as weakness of will. Um, I'm not sure about whether I whether I think it's true or not, but I think it's certainly useful. I think it can provide a really useful framing that can help people get past, you know, get unstuck in certain important ways. You know, sort of often people think uh, I'm unproductive, I'm, you know, I'm lazy, I'm weak-willed, and they get into this cycle of anxiety and end up quite miserable and even less productive than they were in the first place. Um, And I think, you know, sometimes these issues can be solved by... um, 
adopting a framework from philosophy that may or may not be correct, but sort of regardless of the truth of the matter, it's it can still be a helpful tool. Um, so yeah, I sort of I got interested in this, you know, sort of how can what use can we put philosophical thinking and I got this kind of new, like revitalized love of philosophy when I started working that way because it's so rewarding. You know, you just sort of um, work with somebody as a coach and help them work through some, you know, kind of real tangle of anxieties. People do get themselves tangled up, especially as academics, we're often overthinkers. Um, and to see over the course of a, you know, a, a series of coaching sessions, somebody get really unstuck and sort of their life gets on track, they are much happier than than they were when they came to me. I mean, that that's just really rewarding, I think. And this this use of philosophy that you're talking about, I mean, it reminds me of, I, I, as I said, I, I particularly work with scientists, by which I mean STEM. This is not to look down upon social scientists in any way. It's just that's that's the the branch that I've, I've headed in. And, and there is this new movement begun over the last 20 years, which corresponds kind of roughly with the interest or revitalized interest in, in coaching in academic context. And it's called STEAM. So adding an A in there for arts, um, you know, next to the mathematics and the engineering mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. Yeah. And it, I, I, I wonder... If if you've heard of it, maybe maybe you already know about it. But if you're just hearing about it right now, I wonder if you could sort of position yourself in there. I mean, amongst the arts would be considered in that a you know things like philosophy or things like linguistics or literature. Um, some of the um sort of crossover from ethical thinking and to say computer science is something mm-hmm. that's also done mm-hmm. there and 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 other such things. But it sounds a lot like um to me anyway it, that that would be perhaps one of the veins that you're working in. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of STEAM. Um, that's quite cool. They managed to keep it as a, a sort of usable acronym. That's that's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, they, they, they fit a lot into that A, I suppose, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think um, y- you would probably get different answers to this question if you ask different philosophers. I know lots of philosophers who would situate themselves squarely within the arts, you know, who think of themselves as, uh, you know, their their close siblings in the other disciplines are the people from literature studies, English, and so on. Um, Whereas other philosophers would align themselves much more closely with science, I think. Um, I mean, in my own case, I suppose when I think about the, if, if, the sort of the sorts of things that I do my research on and the, the other disciplines I dip into, I think it's mainly uh, sort of social sciences, law, linguistics. Um, those those are the sort of places that I, uh, I I find sort of resonance with my ideas, and that I can sort of dip into to sort of enrich the the philosophical perspective that I already have. Um, but I guess what we're doing here is we're kind of um, we're chopping up knowledge in and putting it in different buckets in in something of an artificial way. Um, you know, we're encouraged these days to be interdisciplinary. Um, and I think it's, this is another thing that sort of people come to me for coaching sessions about, um, that we get sort of hung up on how different branches of knowledge are carved up. 
Um, and what often happens, I think, is is people, some people whose research is very interdisciplinary will come for coaching. And part of their issue is that they don't feel like they're an expert in anything. You know, they are, they're someone that kind of works across various disciplines and they're basically comparing themselves to the people they encounter within each of those disciplines who belong squarely in one of those disciplines. And they think, oh, I don't know. I don't know as much about this discipline as this other person. Um, and by doing that, they miss out on their unique strengths because, you know, they may they, they may not have um, some of the depth of knowledge that certain people who sort of, you know, who stay in their own disciplinary lane have, but their unique strength is sort of drawing on different branches of knowledge and, um, you know, combining it into something informative and interesting and useful and original and unique. So, yeah, I think um, in some, I've <laughs> gone on a bit there. Yeah, you know, I, I have my sort of senses about um, where, uh, where my sort of, um, where my sort of like-minded researchers are, what sort of disciplines they might be found in. But at the same time, I'm sort of in a way resistant to this carving up of knowledge into disciplines and, you know, because it's not just about sort of what you study, is it? It's about um, your gang, you know, these are your people. Uh, these, This is the department where you belong and there might be sort of dangers going outside. Yeah, that, that, I think that's really the key point, I, I think. What you, what you say there is that this gang or this disciplinary identity or, you know, the way a biologist is supposed to think or act and and the philosopher and so on, because I, mm. I mean, I, I, I didn't really formulate a question out of it. So, I mean, I, I don't think you either meandered, <laughs> um, but, but I mean, there is something going on and, and I keep coming back to 20 years, I suppose, because it just fits in nicely with this century. But I mean, this, this, like, for instance, just this past year, the New Yorker ran a, a piece about how, you know, so many, um, disciplines uh, english studies is a perfect example at least in american universities that's what they were focusing on are are dying out slowly you know i mean the interest is being lost there the enrollment numbers are going down um it, it, and you get the sense that there's a bit of a stem overtake going on through uh you know our, our university or our knowledge culture um but on the other hand you have like an interesting call out from stem to you know, and that's what makes me think of all this to to people like you, people to help them understand how it is that, you know, they're supposed to best work. How are they supposed to understand their lives in, in, in the research? I mean, Nature um, have a podcast called Working Scientists, and they've just ran an entire series on, you know, collaborations between artists, uh, visual artists, musicians, whatever, um, together with scientists, you know, um, for different projects and for different reasons and so on, all the way from, you know, illustrating for biologists to, you know, um, sort of sculptures and physics and so on. Um, so it's, it's, it's just interesting. I mean, now I'm meandering, but, <laughs> but it's just interesting to see that there is, um, I think a shift going on at a, at a, basic level in our research and, and and university cultures that some of what's coming out of it is is a need for coaching, a need for guidance, and also a need to reorient and think about disciplines new. Yeah, yeah. And actually, um, something that came out of what you were saying there, I suppose, is it occurred to me that, you know, when um, 
these researchers, uh, academic researchers, you know, we, we are we tend to live in universities and uh, within departments in universities that are defined by discipline. And, you know, in some ways, there's very good reason for that, but given that we're also educating people. So, you know, sort of potential students who want to go and get a degree are going to have thoughts about what sort of degree they might want to do. They might have certain um, certain expectations about employment after they leave university and so on. So we do kind of have to be quite defined in what we offer to students. Um, but when it comes to sort of what we're interested in researching, uh, it can be a lot more anarchic than that, can't it? You know, you might have, as, as you say there, you know, sort of scientists finding um, interesting ways to collaborate with artists and, you know, sort of something useful and interesting coming out of that. But, you know, when you think, well, how is that going to sort of bear on what's being offered to students? I mean, student, <laughs> I'm not sure we'd sort of, you know, what, was, what would potential students think if we said, oh, you know, can we, we're not really doing this kind of um, science stuff anymore. We're sort of collaborating with these other people and we'll just kind of see how it goes. I mean, that, that that's going to be obviously problems <laughs> with that approach. <laughs> Um, well, well, tell 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 us more though about this idea. Then I mean, so you're saying that there's then at the university level with education, undergraduate, I would imagine, or maybe even so master's level, you have in mind a a limitation set upon knowledge seeking or research method or or something like that. Is 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 that what you're driving at? Yeah, I mean, we we have there has to be some clarity about for example, what sort of thing a, de- a biology department is, you know, what, what sort of thing you're going to learn if you uh, if you study a biology degree. Um, I don't know why I use the example of biology because I don't really know <laughs> what, what uh, biology students tend to get taught. But, you know, um, philosophy, my own discipline, there's, um, there's some creativity in what you can teach students. Um, and, you know, a lot of it will be, uh, you know, depending on what, uh, the research interests of the members of staff are uh, you might get sort of courses on some kind of niche things in in philosophy degrees but on top of that there's still this core of stuff that you need to teach undergraduates if they're doing a philosophy degree that you would find in any philosophy department pretty much and if you didn't have it um, it would be pretty remiss because that's you know that it wouldn't really you, know, you might think well is it really a philosophy degree if you don't do a, a course on ethics or epistemology? You know, there's these sort of core areas that, um, that define what a philosophy degree is. And I guess in one sense, that's quite restrictive. Right? Yeah. And, um, and, but this is a really interesting point, because, I mean, on a much smaller level, like uh, take biology. I actually have uh, some years experience working with biologists to help them write. So I, I can say a little bit, at least from that angle, what it is that they're doing. And, and what very many of them experience is a, a major disconnect from the master's thesis to their first published article, like literally like a, a, a chasm they need to cross without a bridge, you know, because all they've learned about writing has not prepared them for that type of writing. And yeah. it's, it's, it's like one of those major moments where very many of them you know, need a reorientation. And and it, I think from what you're saying, it seems like this is kind of, you know, prominent throughout the education system, because if you're talking about like content and things that you're supposed to be knowing, as opposed to what you might need to be a researcher later, or even just to be a 
let's say, productive or creative uh, employee, you know, worker out in the world uh, don't don't line up necessarily with that with that curriculum, do they? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and it's interesting you sort of talk. So I suppose part of what you're talking about there is an anxiety about writing. Um, and I've seen that come in much, much earlier. Um, I, I I see it in undergraduates. So sort of second year undergraduates, uh, I tend to teach sort of second and third year undergraduates. Um, and they are quite anxious about writing essays. Um, so, so often, increasingly, actually, over the last few years, I spent increasing amounts of time in my courses um, talking about how to write a philosophy essay and, you know, sort of what makes a good philosophy essay, what makes a bad one, answering their questions and so on. You and did they, a whole they, episode on it, in fact, if I remember yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. And yes. In, in the run up to term starting, I just thought, OK, it's going to be really useful to have this, actually. Um, but yeah, you know, I sort of realized they, you know, they like the advice and the sort of practical hints but I realized after a while it's it's actually it's not just that they want practical guidance it's that they want it's anxiety I think you know when they want to they want sort of guidance about how to write an essay um 90 percent of that guidance is managing their anxiety and sort of holding their hands and sort of it's okay you know just do this follow my advice here and you'll be okay so they're sort of taking on that they're taking on the advice you give them about how to write an essay, but it's not merely a sort of cause and effect thing of like, okay, well, I just follow these guidelines and then my essays will be better. It's kind of like handholding. Um, there's this anxiety that comes in. And I think you sort of see this. Um, so third year undergraduates um, in philosophy in my institution, and I think this is sort of a pretty common British thing. I don't know if, if how similar it is in the US, but, you know, they'll go through, undergraduates will go through their first and second year of their degrees, writing essays, and um, their essays will all be sort of 1,500 words, 2,000 words-ish. And then they'll get to the third year and they have to write a dissertation, which is uh, an essay of about sort of 9,000, 10,000 words. Um, and it, it's basically just a long essay. <laughs> it's no, it's not more complicated than that. It's an essay, but longer. But they have this real anxiety about it. Um, they're not viewing it as just another essay. They're viewing it as this kind of in the way that some people view PhDs, right? Where it's just, it doesn't matter whether it's 10,000 words or 80,000 words. All they see is, oh my God, this is longer than anything I've ever written before. How am I going to survive? So I think, you know, what you're describing there is this anxiety that comes in at the at the level of masters. I mean, perhaps it does, but I think, you know, we see a version of that coming in much earlier as well. And so, you know, there is this not just how do we give uh, how do we give students and more advanced scholars practical help to ensure that they're able to communicate in the way that they need to be able to communicate, but how can we um, manage their anxiety as they're going through it? Yeah, no, that's that's totally the point, and that's that's what I experienced. It was it was partially. I mean, it comes down to one of these things, but just what you were talking about, yeah, that you the people come looking for advice on text but actually walk away or take mostly this advice on 
well, how to manage everything around the production or the use of the text in a sense. Um, I actually draw the distinction in my work between text itself, the object, right? You know, so many words on the page and what it looks like, the published version and so on, and the literacy involved. I use it a little bit unconventionally because I'm thinking about, okay, so how is it that you, you know, like you say, manage your own anxiety? How is it that you in the sciences in particular collaborate with co-authors because they, you know, really never write alone? Um, how do you work with other people's texts and produce your own? So it's it's a really complex set of activities that are going on. And most people just like, you know, look at this text and like, okay, so where do I need my commas? When when do I do this with a paragraph and so on? I mean, that's a, <laughs> at the end of the day, it's actually a rather simple matter, those, those text issues. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it is, and, and providing those Providing solution to those simple matters is, you know, obviously has a practical significance, but it addresses the the anxiety as well, I think, because it's empowering, right? If you sort of say to, pe- to people, this is, this practical thing is something you need to be doing, then it's, it's like tangible, isn't it? It's something that they can, they can do that they know is going to improve their work going forward. Because I think, you know, it's not just about producing texts is it it's it's also the fact that um a lot of the time maybe even most of the time um academics including students are are taking feedback on their writing to be in a way evaluations of their worth as a human being right so if you get a bad mark or if you get uh, a a nasty peer review it's not just oh um this person, whoever looked at my work, was not impressed by it on this occasion. It's, God, I'm rubbish. I'm not up to this. I don't belong here. It's all sorts of things. Now, that, that, that's for sure. I mean, this, this would lead so nicely into uh, so many of the topics of your podcast, which I want to talk about a little bit more concretely. And perhaps though the best segue into it is, is, is two episodes that you did, which really caught my attention because uh, I've been talking on this podcast now for a while about this idea of scientific reading um, because amongst scientists, and again, in that case, I mean STEM, because that just happened to be where I work. Um, but the, the specialty there is that, you know, at least in the social sciences and in the humanities, I've noticed that people are since they also primarily work with texts quite often, they're a bit more, let's say, text savvy, whereas very many scientists, you know, didn't get into it to write articles. You know, they get got into it to, <laughs> you know, be in the wet lab, to be uh, out in the outdoors in the field and so on. But but I digress. Um, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is you you, you um, gave these two episodes, which caught my, uh, caught my attention, how, how to read and, and how to write. Now, I mean, how to write has been something that people have been talking about for a very long time. But um, it, when you episode sixty nine, to be precise, when you talked about how to, how to read, I was like, ah, great. <laughs> okay, so I'm not the only one who's noticing that people don't realize that this is an automatic skill. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, having to read something that is that doesn't written by somebody that doesn't really care whether you are entertained by it. <laughs> You know, it's not you're not reading novels or magazines, are you? you if you're reading a um, a scholarly journal article, it's um, it, it's work that is written without that much regard to how pleasant an experience it's going to be to read, um, and it's really hard, and it's not necessarily written in a way that is going to make it easier to read, and so it is just really hard going to read. You know, I've, I. 
remember sort of um, having this experience. I talk about it in, in that episode, but sort of early on when I was an undergraduate, noticing that I would do things like, you know, read a paragraph I'd pause and think, okay, what have I just read? And just have nothing to say about it. If somebody had asked me, what was that paragraph about? I would have nothing to say. And so I just got this sense that I was wasting my time, you know, that I couldn't get the knowledge to go in. It may as well have been in a different language. And yeah, that that was a cause of huge anxiety. You know, it was um, not merely, oh God, I'm not going to be prepared for this essay or this seminar that I'm going to be doing, but also you know, do I belong here? Am I up to this? Am I good enough? So yeah, just sort of, I mean, a lot of, take a step back, a lot of that episode, like a lot of the episodes I produce are ways of, attempts to make people feel less alone because um, my experience of that, you know, what I've just described, sort of very lonely. Um, You sort of have this experience of, God, I don't, I just don't understand what I'm reading. And you don't necessarily realise that everybody else is in the same boat. And it would take quite a lot of confidence to, like, to admit it and sort of, you know, sort of, oh, God, this is what's happening when I'm trying to read something. Do you feel the same? You know, that takes that that takes quite a lot of bravery, I think, if you have any anxiety about whether you belong on the course that you're um that you're treading so I think just an attempt to sort of say to people look this, yeah this is a problem that can be addressed but it's a problem that everybody faces and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you yeah that that's that's also I would say one of the major achievements that's done in in coaching or or even in other sort of peer mentoring I had a, a guest on the podcast Barbara Saneka who who did the uh, wrote a book called The Writing Workshop, which I can only recommend. And she also just showed different ways to get people together to read and to write. She herself is a cognitive scientist, but worked, I think, also mm-hmm. with other people from different backgrounds. And um, that was exactly one of the strengths, you know, that you started to realize um yeah, everybody's having trouble with these articles or this article in particular, (laughs) or, um, you know, it's really hard to do X, Y, or Z. And Mm. you look around at all of your, you know, fellow PhD candidates, and and they're all just nodding their heads. I mean, that that is, you know, talk about anxiety reduction, as, as you've said now a few times, this, I think that is a major contribution to it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and the thing is, you know, once you once anxiety gets a foothold, as it invariably does, it's it interferes with everything else. You know, this stuff is already difficult to read and take in and you know ingest, so that you can use it in a seminar or in an essay or a, a, an article or something like this. But then, if you're if you're not only trying to grapple with the material, but also worrying about the fact that you're struggling. And whether you know maybe you maybe this shouldn't be so hard and all that, then it it just gets worse and worse. Um, and I think you know this this is probably part of why academia is notoriously bad for people's mental health. You know, people do end up struggling and dropping out, or you know, just sort of having having really difficult struggles in the background while they're while they're writing or you know, sort of giving their paper or whatever else they might be doing. Well, that kind of brings us around a little bit full circle when we began talking there about coaching or you use the other words, therapy, consulting, or the mentorship training that you went through. I mean, that is precisely where that work is meant to be 
put into, isn't it? You know, I mean, to help beyond the subject matter, to help, let's say, also generally on the method level. And I don't just mean how is it that you set up an experiment, but I mean, how is it you even, you know, find a topic or get through your daily life of all the work you've got to do together with eating and <laughs> and sleeping and, and what have you? Yeah, but I think there's the way it often works in universities, there can be a bit of a problem because yes, you might be assigned a mentor um to, you know, help hold your hand through all this. But if that person is also a colleague, then you might regard them as part of the group of people who you want to impress and you, you, you're worried that they might think you incompetent and all the rest of it. And I think then, you know, there can be this issue with sort of uh, not wanting to take certain problems to your mentor because you're worried that they might think, my God, what, why did we employ you again? I remember I, I, I had this exact attitude. Um, I've spoken about this too on, the, on my podcast, but um, yeah, I, I had a few years out of academia um, was really, really keen to get back in. It was just sort of really what I wanted. And then when it finally happened, it was kind of paralyzing. You know, I was, it meant so much to me that I just, I just got this sort of immense writer's block. I would sit there thinking, I can't think of a single idea. I have no ideas. I don't know what I'm <laughs> going to write about. Um, so, you know, in one sense, I could go to a colleague and say, oh, look, I'm having this problem and, and confide in them. But you know, I didn't want my colleagues, I was already worried about what my colleagues might think of me and whether they thought they'd made a terrible mistake by giving me a job. So so the idea of sort of going to them and saying, basically, I'm having trouble doing this job that you've just given me was, you know, really intimidating. There was no way I was going to do that. That's a, that's a fantastic point, though, that you make there. It makes it sound like, you know, these sort of mentoring or coaching impulses need also to come from the outside. You know, it's it's almost like the base of um, the American Writing Center, which has spread throughout Europe now over the past 30 years or so, that, you know, if you need help on your writing or your writing process, it's best not to get it from the professor that's going to grade you, you know, <laughs> that's, that's kind of the whole, you know, it's an outside independent source who's actually interested in you and what you're creating and, and that is, I think, probably something to take away from this because, I mean, in science, again, which I keep referring to merely just because of, of uh, you know, well, it's, it's one of the interests of this podcast as well. Uh, but in any case, their mentorship is, you know, very, very closely aligned with your research group or your research institute and so on. And it has a bit of formalism about it at times. You know, I mean, uh, there's lots of great stories from people who've had wonderful mentors. I, I sometimes wonder, though, if those are in the minority and are, were also just wonderful chemical personality matchups in a way that, you know, very many other mentorships didn't pan out. But but the, there's a you're, you're talking about a kind of almost conflict of interest in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, um, universities do try to address this, I think, by uh, sort of assigning assigning people to mentors who are in a different department say and then you know they might be employees of the same institution but the mentor is not a close colleague um but yeah I think you know that's certainly helpful I guess but I think you know if you are somebody who has a lot of anxiety about your competence then I don't know how I, I can imagine in some cases that might be you're not necessarily going to be thinking that rationally, right? Okay, well, this person isn't in my department. I probably don't need to worry about 
their evaluation of me. If you've already got this sort of imposter syndrome type fear of being unmasked and humiliated as the, you know, completely laughable incompetent that you think you are, then you know, you might want to sort of hide away a little bit more than that. But, you know, there is this practical problem of, of it depends, you know, assigning per, assigning somebody the perfect mentor depends on the perfect mentor being accessible and available and all the rest of it. And it's this sort of logistics problem as much as anything, I guess. Yeah, another I guess we, argument, though, really, for, for having then, you know, additional help there, you know, academic support in a more general sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned you mentioned there, you know, I think it's a fantastic idea to have a sort of independent organisation that can sort of provide this to people. Um, and, and some people that come to me for coaching have their, um, it, they are, they, they get the money for it from their institution because it's, you know, they have some funds available for, um, professional development and it might come under that so you know there are ways of getting it but it's you know people do have, kind of have to nose around um you know I get people sort of coming to me through my podcast so it's not like you know they, they've kind of found my found me by accident then it's not like they've um their employer has given them a list of like these are these are a list of people that can help you go and find them we'll pay for it um so yeah, I mean, I think it's. I'm not sure what the solution is here, but um, it's it's not always as easy to access as it could be. I think. No, no, for sure. I mean, and that's also one of my motivations here. I mean, early career researchers are at the center of my attention, but I'm interested in helping any researchers, and and that is just one of the things. Also, as you've just said through your own podcast, is just get the word out. You know, I mean, get talking about these things, and that that's already in itself. Um, you know helping somehow, you know, I mean, if the structures in the university aren't going to advertise it, well, then I guess we'll have to in a sense. Um, yeah, but yeah. but the, the one of the aims that I certainly had in, in wanting to speak to you was to speak also about your coaching work a little bit more particularly and and, and, and of course about your, your podcast, which is um, out there and available to everyone. And again, I I highly recommend it. There's so many good things about it. I mean, the content is what we've been talking about, things like time management and being assertive or dealing with envy or the inner critic, which returns. And, and the list is long of things that, that you cover in, in wonderful ways and give useful advice and have that unique philosophical perspective. What you also have, though, is <laughs> your, your cats <laughs> and, and, and your own style, which is so neat. Um, I, I, I rarely have laughed out loud at podcasts that I listen to, but I have at yours very many times. Uh, there was one moment, which I'll never forget about, you use yourself so often as an example, and you talked about the slobby Rebecca lazing on the couch. <laughs> It was really just too much. But I mean, <laughs> but I, where I'm going with this is I, I would, I, I think it would be interesting um, for my listeners to hear about sort of your day to day and the coaching and how that then feeds into the podcast. So a bit of your, say, workflow and anecdotal mm. experience there. Yeah. So sort of what my day to day looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So I do. I have two cats. Two of my cats are in the room with me right now. Um, if you can hear any jingling, that's uh, the bell of the one that's sitting on my lap. Um, yeah. So I think um, I have this, I suppose I, in some ways I have an unusual schedule because um, I'm a single parent as well. So just sort of trying to fit everything in. Um, I tend to get up really early. 
Um, so I'll be up at six, partly because I sort of feel like if I can get out of bed I, at six, I've already achieved something, even if I get absolutely nothing done, <laughs> just because I'm up earlier than everybody else. Um, so that feels like an easy win. But yeah, I, I, I find that I can um, concentrate best early on. So I will get up and I will try to get some writing done early on. Um, at one point, um, not that long ago, maybe just sort of three years ago or so, I thought that, you know, if you were an academic, serious academic writer, um, you would be sitting down and writing pretty much nonstop in a state of flow for, um, you know, four hours plus, maybe breaking for lunch and going back and doing the same thing again. Um, and that, and that's what everybody else was doing. But I, I've never managed to work like that. And I still don't. And these days, I don't expect myself to. Um, I will try. I, so I think if I, if I get up at six and manage to write for 20 minutes, I regard that as a win. Um, I don't have huge expectations of myself in that um, respect these days. So then I will sort of, you know, try and get try and get a head start on the day. You know, if there's any sort of urgent admin tasks that are going to be sort of causing my anxiety in the back of my mind if I don't do them, I try to get those done. Um, and then once my kids are up, it's sort of into just the sort of practicalities of the day. Um, yeah, but I think so. We're we're time wise, we're talking. So we're up to about seven. AM, 7.30 AM today. Lots of time, nothing else of any, of much use will happen during the day. I, you know, I might get, I might get some emails done. I might sort of flounder about a bit, trying to get on top of various things that I'm supposed to be doing. Um, but yeah, often, often I've peaked at 7.30 AM. Um, and I think, you know, I accept that now. I don't regard myself as an awful person um, if I don't get much more done um, after that. Uh, and having accepted that, I think, you know, because and I'm saying this because I know a lot of people think that if they can't be compassionate to themselves because then they'd be letting themselves off the hook and their, you know, their slobby cells would take over. But I think I'm, I'm way more productive now having, you know, kind of let myself off the hook in the dreaded way um, than... Uh, compared to how I used to be. Um, so yeah, that that's what happens. If I'm teaching, so if I'm teaching, none of this will happen. If I'm teaching, I'll be up early and I'll drive to work. Um, and I will, uh, so I have a sort of longish commute and I try to set off early so I can avoid most of the traffic. Um, so, so I tend to arrive maybe an hour or two before my first class, and then I will um, have, just have some quiet time doing what I need to do. I might get some writing done if I'm lucky, um, or it might be things like sort of preparing for my teaching and so on. Um, then I'll do my teaching and then I'll drive home and I'll be completely wiped out. Um, just, the, you know, I try to make the commute as pleasurable as I can, um, you know, listening to podcasts that I enjoy, stuff like that, making a cup of tea in a travel mug and taking along with me. But no matter how hard I try, it, it really exhausts me. Um, and I find teaching really exhausting as well. Um, I, I really love my students. Um, they are a complete delight. Um, but I'm super introverted. I, I I find sort of prolonged interaction with people, you know, even people I like, even my family, um, really exhausting. And so, you know, a day of teaching um, and commuting, I don't expect anything else of myself those days. Um, 
so yeah, I'm probably giving a giving a um, an impression of my um, my weekdays. It's sort of fairly slapdash, which they kind how of how about are. with the coaching sessions itself? Yeah, how how so, does that fit in with yeah, things, so or in particular the flow over into the podcast itself? Right, right. So the um, the the coaching and especially the podcasting are sort of very much extracurricular. So you know, I. I I have a full-time job at a university um, and then the coaching and the podcasting are stuff that I do outside of that. So the podcasting is, it's almost a form of therapy um, because I'm very often using the, the the topics I address in my episodes. I'm sort of very often uh, using the opportunity of the podcast to articulate and explore worries and problems and anxieties that I have as well as the, the people I've um, I've coached, so I find that sort of weirdly energizing. You know, it's a hobby, but it's I, I really enjoy doing it, and I guess in a sense I get energy from it, um, especially when people say they found it valuable. That that's sort of super rewarding. Um, the coaching is is that kind of ticks along. So that's something I do. Um, it's not exactly a hobby, but it's you know it's something I do um, alongside my my university job. So it's kind of extracurricular in that way. Um, yeah, and that so that just sort of ticks along. Um, I don't particularly do anything to uh, to push it along at the moment um, because I'm kind of at capacity pretty much. You know, I, I don't have um, there's a limit to how much how much coaching I can do while you know keeping two kids and seven cats alive and doing a full-time university job that's so, very yeah. understandable yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but okay. but how how about also um i mean it's very clear as as we've established that you know it's it's from your philosophy background and training that you've you've you found an in to doing this mm. coaching work and and to the approach that you have to how you set up the podcast and the and the topics that you cover and how you deal with them, uh, but you're 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 probably I'm guessing uh, doing also a bit of resourcing and researching into some of these topics as well because of the coaching or because of the podcast. Uh, um, I would imagine um, is, is is there anything that you you go to? I mean, you mention podcasts quite often. Mm. Um, you'll reference here and there a book, but do you find yourself also, let's say, adding on to your thinking or to your stack of reading or listening or whatever it might be, or perhaps even additional sort of qualifications or training because of, of the work that you're in? Yeah, I think so. A lot of the podcasts I like to listen to and the the books I like to read are things to do with um, sort of health and like sort of, pra- I guess, practical um, ways of attempts to practical to offer practical sort of science-backed uh, tips for staying healthy. Um, and I think that this, I got into this, it's sort of close to the beginning of the pandemic um, when I was, I was just sort of in, in a bit of a bad state. I was really exhausted, just constantly. Um, not sleeping particularly well, tired all the time, um, just really depleted. And there just came a point where I thought I have to do something about this. So I I just sort of implemented various changes in my life um, all at once. 
um, which means that I can't really, you know, sort of people say, oh, you know, how do you, did you find making this particular change helped? And my answer is always, well, I don't know. I kind of did everything at the same time. But things like, you know, I got more, much more sensible about going to bed at a reasonable hour. Uh, I started exercising a lot more. I stopped drinking alcohol completely. So I was never a huge drinker, but I would, you know, I sort of had a glass of wine at the end of the day um, most days. So, so I stopped that. Um, yeah, I got quite strict about using my phone and then just sort of got this, got interested in just exploring how I could, uh, what sort of things I could do, low effort things to keep myself healthy and alert and energized and so on. So, um, you know, this, this addresses, I think, your question about, you know, am I researching this kind of stuff? And I suppose the answer is yes, but it's, it kind of comes from a hung, my own hunger for information on on this topic, so it sort of doesn't really feel like research. Right, it's continuous then. Sort yeah, of. yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. So, so I'm in that kind of frame of mind of like, what can I do, especially as a sort of fairly um, overstretched person? You know, what can I do to make my life a little bit easier? Um, so yeah, that's the kind of health, uh, mental health side of things. But the philosophy side of things, I think. I don't often read, sort of go to uh, read bits of philosophy for the purpose of research for my podcast. Um, what tends to happen is that, um, you know, being in that sort of frame of mind of thinking of how how can I apply philosophy to um, provide, you know, a useful framing that might help people manage a particular issue more effectively um, just being in that frame of mind and being interested in that sort of application of philosophy has just resulted in me noticing um, possibly helpful bits of philosophy in a way that I hadn't done before. So just sort of, you know, sort of thinking about a particular philosophical framework or theory or idea um, for completely, for reasons completely unrelated to my podcast, and then thinking, oh, hang on a minute, actually, this this idea could possibly help with this problem. So it's this sort of fairly organic process of cross-fertilization, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the impression that that I take away from the podcast as well, that it's really you, you know, I mean, this is just how you think about these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's, so I I really didn't want to, you know, I, I, I knew that there was this, um, this sort of potential to use philosophy to help people with certain problems in their lives. But I didn't really want to become quite kind of, you know, kind of school teacherish about it, where it's sort of, okay, let's, here's your homework, go away and read this philosopher, like here, here's what they say, and here are our lessons <laughs> from it. I just sort of, I didn't want to kind of, you know, artificially shoehorn it into the podcast episodes I do. So I suppose that the approach that I take is that I've been doing philosophy so long that I'm just assuming it's in my DNA now. So I I couldn't not take a philosophical approach to these problems. So I guess I just sort of kind of trust my own way of thinking to be philosophically philosophical enough when I do these podcast episodes. Well, you've succeeded in that for sure, I would say. Oh, and, and it is also, it's refreshing from somebody outside of philosophy because you see then at some point in each episode, ah, I see what she's doing now, <laughs> you know, but it's not what I, I would have done, you know, with with my background um, naturally, let's say. Yeah. Um, to, to, to close out, um, I, 
I always like to close out by giving my guests sort of a, a brief platform to talk about helping academia, or as I often say, help the research because I'm so interested in science. So anything that you can imagine that, you know, from your own experience as an academic a researcher, but also, of course, particularly with your, your, your coaching background, uh, what would be a thing that's a big or a small thing that we could change that would help in any way possible? And I, I think with your experience, it might also be interesting to, if, if you can also just ignore this last tag on, if it, if it doesn't really resonate, but this idea of what you might have been expecting as you got into your line of work with coaching on the podcast and, and, and what you've actually then perhaps been surprised by finding actually, once you've started coaching. But the, but the real issue is that idea of, as I said, change. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that there's so much to change. Um, yeah, I think one, one really big issue is that for many of us, we got into our particular brand of academia because we were interested and energized in the in the discipline or you know in the topics that we were researching but at some point along the way we started caring too much about you know the measurable outputs so we stopped caring about sort of just being interested and drawn into this topic for its own sake and we started thinking about well I need to publish this I need to sort of have this be able to teach this course I need to get this degree so it, it becomes all about the the outputs um, and then along with that, there's, you know, once you start caring about the outputs, you start worrying about sort of whether your particular outputs are, outputs are good enough and so on. And that just kind of sucks all the joy out of the process, I think. Um, so I think for, for any academic, I think a, a lot of there's a lot of mileage in trying to reconnect with why we're doing what we're doing in the first place. Um, you know, what is it? fall in love with the process again you know that's really difficult given how much pressure we're under to produce the right sort of outputs um but you know if you can find space in that to reconnect with your love of the the process you know your love of the topic of just the experience of learning and writing about that topic then um i think that that can solve a lot of problems and if you can't do that then you don't have to stay academia can be quite cultish right where we kind of think oh i meet people that think oh my god i I can't i'm sort of indoctrinated i'm i'm um i can't possibly i wouldn't survive in the wild (laughs) i sort of stuck in academia now and that's just that's just nonsense you know if you if, if you find that you can't connect with the love that you once had for your research then you know there's there's life elsewhere Well, thank you very much for that, Rebecca. That is Rebecca Roach, lecturer, coach, and podcaster. And thanks to you, my listeners. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.